all the time, because I'm really proud of this era of my life. Like, it was my best football ever. Like, age 8 to 13, I was no just, doubt. No, I was, I'm best. a Hall of Famer. Yeah, I'm a <laughs> dummy. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode here on You Think, presented by Audiorama and our friends at Body Armor. Well, I promised you guys a big update. The Charlotte City, I don't even know what our league is called. I'll be honest. The We just call it the City Championship Memorial Stadium. Last Tuesday night, under the lights versus the PAL Little Panthers. They're like the Carolina Panthers affiliated youth program. The South Charlotte Patriots, 21. And the Little Panthers, zero. So it was a great week. We were pumped. We won the city championship. The kids, we didn't play perfect, but we, for the most part, we played pretty well. Um, they were talented. They were good. They were well coached. And we were able to pull it off. We had an unbelievable pick six in the second quarter, which put it 14, nothing. And after that, it was pretty much over. But uh, what, a, what a great night for the kids. It was a beautiful night here in Charlotte. Played under the lights. Game started at a little after seven. The Panthers, um, they filmed it and they put it on like a local TV station um, that weekend as like, you know, they produced it and then packaged it and then they aired it on one of our local Charlotte um, stations. So the kids got to watch themselves on TV. So just all in all, it was an awesome night after a bunch of the families, we went for pizza and hung out. The kids all enjoyed it. So that it was, that was probably as they probably had more fun doing that than actually playing in the game, but it was a really cool week. So that sets up the mid South regional championship, November 19th. So that is our next game. We have this weekend off and, uh, for a bye week And then we play a team out of Raleigh. Who's really good, uh, really well coached has been in the championship the last couple of years. So the South Charlotte Patriots, we have our work cut out for us, but the fact that we are playing still is is a win. We're playing with house's money now for a bunch of kids who had for the most part, never really played before. And where we started back in July to where we are now is why we do it. It's been really cool to see the kids grow, to see them get better, to see the families like really embrace what we're doing. It's been, um, it's been really cool. So it will be two weeks before I have another South Charlotte Patriots pop Warner football update for you guys. If we win this next game, which again is a tall task, we would qualify to go to the national tournament in Florida which blows my mind. Cause if you would have told me we'd be playing football into December um, this summer, I would have drug tested you. So we will see how it goes, but I'm proud of the kids. Uh, the coaches have been awesome. The families have been great. And um, we are just continue to keep pounding, man. We're just, just keep grinding and see what happens. My other, uh, my daughter's starting the, her soccer playoffs. So her season's winding down. Her team's doing really good. They haven't lost a game yet. My both. And then the two boys baseball, as you know, is over. So sports is settling down right now. It's really just football with my oldest son and my daughter finishing up her soccer season playoffs. So I will keep you guys posted on the craziness of the Olsen family sports experience. Uh, today we have a really cool guest. I love this conversation was awesome. We have Marcellus Wiley, former NFL football player. Um, you see him on Fox. He's an NFL broadcaster. He hosts the podcast more to it on iHeart and Dan Patrick Network. Um, so we're super psyched for you guys um, to hear Marcellus. Uh, thank you so much to our sponsor, Body Armor. As you guys know, Body Armor not only fuels this show, but it fuels all of our youth sports teams around town. Um, there's a lot of choices for sideline sports drinks. My favorite is the orange mango. We crush it. 
It's in our house. I had like 10 last night. It's like 85 degrees here in Charlotte. I came home from practice last night and like crushed like 10 of them. Um, it's what my kids want. It's what we drink. It's what we drink in our house. It's what our teams use. We're super thankful for Body Armor um, for continuing to be a part of this journey here on You Think. Body Armor is made with coconut water, B vitamins, no artificial sweeteners. And for more information, you can go to drinkbodyarmor.com. So now please enjoy this conversation with Marcellus Wiley. Marcellus, what's up, man? Thanks for joining us. Oh, man, this is going to be fun. Uh, Greg Olson, Gio, let's go, baby. Let's talk it. <laughs> All right. So I, before I get into to your current, you know, as a dad and as a parent, your views on, on youth sports scene, I want you to take us back. Like, take us back to a young Marcellus growing up, playing the game, how you were exposed to it. Like, what are your early childhood memories playing youth sports? Yeah, um, my first experience with youth sports uh, – wasn't in a structured setting. Uh, I played golf, and this is 1979, and I'm at wow. a golf course. Yeah, my dad's an avid golfer to this day. Every day he's out there swinging them, and he took me to the Rancho Golf Course right across the street from Fox Studio Lock in 1979, and I'm out there. My father, Calvin Pete, who was a great golfer back in the days, and Smokey Robinson, yes, the singer. Wow was out there. And I remember this because my dad was so damn hype talking about both of them. And we're out there golfing. Now, at that time, 1979, me and these three out there <laughs> golfing, let's just say we might stick out. Maybe. Got it. I think Pre we all Tiger got Woods. it. Yeah, yeah, I think we got it. I think we know. <laughs> yeah, Tiger wasn't on the scene yet. So it was a little different. Um, and I remember I hit a 40-footer. And I lost my mind. Now, I remind you, I'm watching all these old geezers out there struggling with five-footers. And here I go across the street damn near, hit a putt from 40 feet, and I lose it. And my father looked at me, and every other person looked at me like, uh, wrong sport, wrong personality, <laughs> wrong culture. From then, I was like, golf? No, sir. So I took it from golf. And I was a fast kid. Like, I could roll. I could run, run. And I was on a track team, and then I played football. My football memory is simple. Fast kid in front of the house, going light pole to light pole, diving on cars, catching it, diving in the bushes, catching it, outrunning everybody. And then one day, my friend Dominique Walker came to me and he said, hey, bro, you too damn fast and too damn crazy not to play football. And at that time, I didn't know that football was a structured thing for seven, eight-year-olds. So I signed up, got the registration money, and then I started balling. So how, how old are you? So like your, your organized youth sports experience started when? Let's say eight. Eight okay, years so old. Okay, so you were still young, yeah. Yeah. So and you I was were young. A, yeah, I was on a team, tackle football, you know, 1983. Hello. Um, and I'm out there, and I'm a fullback. Now, this hard, already, I'm having issues in organized sports because I'm like, I'm the fastest dude I've seen in the neighborhood, and I'm a fullback. Now, I didn't know that my tailback, who's Stace Bozeman, who became number one in the nation in football and number two in the nation in basketball his senior year, fast forward, that was our tailback. So it made sense that I couldn't uh, get the rock as much as Stace Bozeman. But outside of that, dog, I was out there eating. Yeah, and this was before, like, modern day, not to make you sound old, but this was before, like, modern day football spread multiple times. Back then, even when I was growing up playing, like, say, I was young, like, say, in the early 90s, the fullback elite was the lead blocker, and the tailback got the ball. 
So hell yeah. Kids nowadays don't really even know what like a true fullback is. You yeah, were a guard. I, you were a guard. A guard with speed. Yeah. Basically, yeah. I was a guard with you were speed. A fast guard. <laughs> oh, it was the worst, bro. I mean, I still scored. I remember. Stacy scored 36 touchdowns. We didn't lose a game. We won a championship. I scored 12 touchdowns because okay. I was a fast fullback. There you go. But I didn't get through. I mean, I missed the neck roll out there, man. Look like yeah, Tom Rathman or something. So was yeah. I. I wore a neck roll all through high school. I, I only stopped wearing a neck roll when I got to college. All right, Marcellus, you, you mentioned that, you know, your early experience with sports was golf with your father. What, what was your parents' approach towards youth sports with you? Like, did they push it on you? Is it something they really encouraged? Was it something that was more driven by you that they then supported? Like, tell us just a little bit about, I think every household has a different, you know, approach. My dad was the local high school football coach. So we played football because we didn't really have a choice. And then we ended up all loving it. Like, what was it like in your family? What was the approach towards athletics? Yeah, my family dynamic was, looking back, man, very interesting because my father never pushed me into any sport. And he was never boisterous or overly supportive. Uh, He wasn't the type to put that pressure on me. My father just was always there. He was more of a stability and he was a stabling force and he made sure I stayed committed but he never pushed me. He never tried to push me into extra curriculars and extra credit or extra reps at the practice. He was just like, give 100% when you're out there, never quit, and I see you when it's over. My mother was a little different. Um, She was a little more colorful with it. Um, She didn't necessarily want me to go pro or ball out of control, but she was like, if you're going to go out there, bring it. If you're going to do it, do it hard. You know, go hard or go home. So my mother was the exclamation point where my father was just like that stabling force. But my neighborhood, my dynamics, being from L.A., being from Compton, being from South Central, all of that rhetoric was the noise that I heard. Like, you got a ball. You got to be a baller or entertainer to get out the neighborhood. All those kind of stereotypes and simplicity. So I heard it. I just didn't hear from my parents, and I'm thinking that was a great balancing act to know that that pressure exists, but not to always feel the burn from that pressure. That's super interesting. Talk a little bit more about that. Like, talk a little bit more about like the cultural pressures of growing up where you did, the neighborhood you grew up in. You know what was expected out of guys like you. Like, talk a little bit more about what that was like. The good, the bad, maybe the pressures at a young age. When you really first, like how old were you when you really started first noticing? I think that's super interesting to just understand everybody's background, everybody's upbringing, everybody's you know neighborhood they grew up in pre- presents a different landscape, a different unique set of challenges. I'd be super interested to hear how yours shaped you. Yeah, um, for me, it was interesting because I had talents and I knew it. Like I knew I was super fast. Like you just couldn't deny it. And track and field being the original sport, the purest sport, it's pretty easy to say, oh, he's fast. He's not. Um, It's just a race, like nothing else. So there's no coaching involved. There's no, oh, I got bad teammates. It's like, no, let's go. Now I'll beat you. So I'm seven years old. I'm beating 10-year-olds, 11-year-olds, sometimes even someone's uncle. Your daddy, if he's too old, I'm smoking him too. So, like, it was a problem, Greg. Like, young me, I set national records. We won national championships. I was fast, fast. Were you big? Um, I was taller than the average okay. Joe. Tall, skinny? But I, yeah, more okay. tall, skinny than tall. Oh, defensive end in the field. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, that 
let me know that I had something. And that broadcast to the hood that, oh, Marcel's got something special. And when you're young, especially playing football, if you're fast, you're already in, in the 99 percentile. Like, all it is is sweep left, sweep right when I was growing up. And right. if you could get the corner, it's a wrap. Yep. And so I would score every time I touched the ball, I felt like, just because I was faster than kids my age. Then the neighborhood caught wind of that. And I think the pressures come from those who have unfulfilled fantasies in sports. So your uncles, your older cousins, their friends, the guys who went to maybe a junior college and didn't make it or went to a four-year and didn't go pro, and now he's coaching. So it becomes this vicious cycle when you're talking about people who didn't fully realize their potential, and now they're going to map it on you because they see something in you. They see in you what they saw in themselves, but they didn't finish the deal. So that's part of the pressure. But also some of it is just socioeconomic, man. It's just like we grew up on welfare. Uh, food stamps, county checks, got paid twice from the government every month. Then you get the colored money, which was food stamps, funny money. You're like, what do I do with this? And those adults who felt the shame that came from that looked at you in some form or fashion as a lottery ticket. And I knew it. Like, I was a young kid, and I used to tell cats, I, I'm going to be super— How old are you when you—not to interrupt you, but how old are you when you know it? For me? Yeah, like I, knew it as, I knew it as soon as I was fast, seven, eight years old. I knew so it. So that like, young, that young. Yeah, yeah, day one, bro. Like, I'm out there, I'm out there with a, a, a responsibility. I don't even call it a pressure because, to me, pressure means you have options. You have choices. Like, you got a big game. You can win or you can lose. But responsibility is, no, you got to do it. <laughs> like, right. like, I felt everyone looking at my little fast self like, oh, you got to do it. And I wanted to do it. I think that's where the fire met the gas. It wasn't a kid who, nah, I don't care. Oh, I'm good and fast, but where the ladies at? Uh, oh, I want to go hang with my boys. I wasn't caught up in that. I said, if I have a talent, I must maximize it to help my family out of our circumstance, to get us off of welfare, to get us out the hood. So I'm just a young, responsible kid. Um, Looking back, that's a heavy load to carry. But I carried it so long, I never knew it was a load. I just built into myself, I'm going to be good, and this is going to be my way out on top of my academics. So just being a young kid, man, the neighborhood just whispers to you. And they whisper before they yell. And they whisper, hey, keep going, man. Hey, I got you. Hey, you're going to make some money. Oh, you're going to make it to the league. Oh, do this and that. And then as you get closer to realizing that goal, that whisper turns to a yell. I, I just think it's really just so fascinating that here you are as a seven, eight-year-old kid and, you, and you're able to kind of not only feel that, that pressure of, of, of what it takes and the responsibility as you classify it, like to get your family out, to get a better life, to get better opportunities, but to be so young. Like I just find that to be so fascinating. So now take us a little further down the road. Like if you felt it when you were eight, all of a sudden now you're in high school and you have the opportunity now, we'll talk about your time at Columbia Ivy League education from Compton, which is a, I can't wait to hear that part of the story. But talk to me about your high school experience now. So now you've, you've gotten out of the youth circles. Now you're in high school where there's probably a ton of eyes on you, right? Every, all your friends and everyone in the neighborhood, they really know who you are now. You're 16 years old, 17 years old. Was it harder? Was it easier? 
Oh, it was definitely harder in high school because I came in with huge expectations. Okay, so I'm getting recruited to go to high school. Now, this is 1987, 1988, where that happened, but it didn't happen like it does now. Right. Like, it wasn't even, like, commonplace. And recruited then. by who? Private and public schools? Yes. Okay. Yes. So I'm the kid, all those Pop Warner years, I'm destroying cats. Like, people laugh all the time because I'm really proud of this era of my life. Like, it was my best football ever. Like, age 8 to 13. I no was doubt. Just, I was, I'm a Hall of Famer. Yeah, I'm a dummy. <laughs> I'm killing cats. But uh, I used to be the kid, five touchdowns every game, go to the snack stand, order me some chili cheese Fritos, a tiki punch, and that was my routine. And then you take off the shoulder pads and the helmet. Then you play throw-up tackle with your friends, the same guys you just played against. And we're playing another football game on the side field to see who could really ball because now we're all on the same team going against each other. And every time I would do that, some adult male, some coach, somebody would come up to me, hey, Wiley, where are you going to school? And I'm like, I, I'm in Overwrite Junior High. What do you mean? He's like, where are you going to school in high school? I was like, I don't know. Probably Westchester. I don't know. Well, all right. I need to find your mom and dad. We need to talk about that. It would happen every game. And I'm like, damn. So I ended up going to high school with these huge expectations. And I'm this top running back. And at that time, being a running back is special. Like, that's the quarterback yep. of today, being you know a running that. back yesterday. And so I get to high school. And first day of practice... Like, I'm the starter. they like, Marcellus is the guy. We've seen him already. And I didn't know what was happening to my body at the time, but I was going through a huge growth spurt, and I had Osgood slaughters. So my knees were hurting, but it felt weird to tell people at 13, 14, oh, by the way, my knees hurt. I was like, either they're going to think I'm soft or they're going to think I'm lying because who has bad knees at 13? So I would come home and ice my knees, sometimes in secrecy. I would just, like, go away in the corner and just try to ice my knees. And finally, obviously, my family caught on. And they were just like, all right, just keep icing them. Not knowing I had Osgood slaughters, not knowing that this was really going to cripple me. So you fast forward. I didn't get slower. I just didn't keep growing at the same pace. And then all of a sudden, all those kids who were slower we're still growing, going through puberty, voices getting deeper, getting faster, and they're close to me. Like, I'm still faster than all of them, but I don't have that gap anymore. I got to be more calculated with these runs instead of just careless. I don't care. I'm going to outrun the whole team. And that was devastating to me, not only as a player, but as a person, because I'm responsible for my family to get out the neighborhood. And now I'm not that tier one prospect blue chipper that I was just yesterday. So in high school, man, it was a struggle. It was a roller coaster, bro. And I had to ride that wave until everything started to settle. That That's really, I mean, I just think it's so fascinating. And I think our listeners are going to get such a kick, like to just understand the amount of pressure and the amount and, and face of expectations at such a young age, I think we're a little more accustomed to it today, right? Kids, kids at the early age, they're on social media. We've seen highlight tapes. We've known the, we know the next blue chip basketball prospect because we've been watching them on YouTube for the last, but to, for people to realize like back when you were growing up, like, which, you know, similar to when I was growing up, like you didn't know who the <laughs> young athletes were unless you were, you know, in your own neighborhood, you knew, but this was right. very uncommon in those days to have 
outside of your own neighborhood to have guys that had these level of expectations to deal with. I think that's, I mean, can you imagine going through what you went through and the expectations locally and in your, with your friends and your neighborhood and your high school in today's world? Oh man. It's so your, crazy. Your, your 10 year old highlight pop Warner tape would have been viral on TikTok every weekend. Yeah. It's crazy, man. The dynamics, how they shifted. And, um, you know, in a relative sense, I did have to experience that because I lived in a bubble. Yeah. Um, we would travel for our track team. We would leave the state for running our track meets and our national meets and international meets. So I did get that exposure athletically. And that was amazing because when you leave your neighborhood, you leave your state, you realize, oh, there's a fast kid everywhere. I mean, you you know, you sit at home in L.A., Compton, you're like, man, we the fastest in the world. Maybe New York, maybe Texas, maybe Miami. Then you get somewhere from Des Moines, Iowa. And you're like, what? yo, he's <laughs> just can't. No, come on. It's so true. <laughs> he fast, fast. And then you like race somebody from Tulsa. And you're like, he fast. And you're like, what's going on? And it just lets you know there's so many different paths up the mountain. But for me, that pressure, and I see it today because, frankly, I want my son to embrace wherever he is in his elevation in sports, academics, et cetera. I never want him to shy away from whatever potential greatness he has. And at the same time, know that that is different than you actually going out there and making it happen. I tell him all the time, I say, look, I don't care how good you are. Football doesn't care how good you are. It's how well you play. So when all this noise comes and tells you you're the man, all this noise comes and tells you you're not the man, that doesn't matter. That that favorite, that team that's undefeated, and he's seven. That little dude right there, he's seven. And Greg, he he's already at it. He's already better than me in my glory days. I love it. Four, five, seven touchdowns a game. He's like that. And sometimes he gets caught up in those mental traps we all did. Of course. He'll play a team that's undefeated, and he'll be like, uh-oh, daddy, they're really good. They can beat us. And then he'll play a sorry team, and I can see his effort start to wane, or he's like, I'm going to play around with them. And then he realizes those lessons we all learn. It's not how good you are, it's how well you play. Yeah. And you get knocked you can get knocked down real fast. And they learn it at a young age. You brought up your, your children. You're a father. I'm a father of three young ones. The reality is my kids don't need to make it in sports to get out, right? They're not getting out of anything. My parent, my kids are gonna be able to go to college. They go to a great school. There is no economic compo- component, no so, you know, social component to them having to make it in sports. You told your story. The reality is your children also, they don't need to improve your family's lives. They're not responsible. So like, how are you taking your experience, what you had growing up now being in a very different position with what you've been able to accomplish and everything you've been able to do in your life now, but still keep your kids to have that drive. Like I want my kids to have the drive, like their lives depend on being good at something. I don't care if it's sports, whatever it is even though the reality is their lives don't depend on it, right? Like that's a hard balance for kids growing up in a family similar to ours where like you don't have to burden that expectations and responsibility, right? You're right, man. I'm glad we got here. Uh, we may stay here for a second. Um, I feel, I feel victim to a narrative for a long time, had thousands of conversations about it. How if you're from despair or from adversity, that you're hungrier than a person from affluence. 
And that was kind of a narrative that just floated around to everybody, rich, poor, everybody. I mean, I'm coming from L.A., Compton, then I go yep. to Columbia, I heard the narrative academically. I heard it in terms of athletics, being on the field, all, all the inner city or all the broke kids or the hungrier kids than no the doubt. kids from I the suburbs. I saw it down in Miami. No yeah, doubt. I get right, it. Right? Totally. No doubt. And, and then, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. I finally woke up from that coma that they were trying to keep me under in terms of the spell of that hunger comes from circumstances. I remind you, we started off this conversation that my father never pressured me. My mother never pressured me, but I felt it in my surroundings. But it was my internal drive that was ignited, and that's what gave me the devotion, the discipline, the determination to do it. When I got to the league and I started looking around, and I'm a sociology major, so I'm in the locker room not just looking at ballers, but looking at personalities, looking at different characters. And I start realizing that not everybody in this locker room is from the hood. Not everyone in this locker room is from bad circumstances. And matter of fact, some of the best players came with a silver spoon. And I was like, oh, some of them are second generation ballers. Some may even be almost third generation ballers as we're starting to see now. And I was like, wait a minute. That hunger is not just from the neighborhood. That hunger is from internal resources that have been built up by family dynamics, their own character, their own mental makeup, et cetera. So now I'm the guy who looks at my kids and I'm not going to put them under that spell of like, oh, since y'all got it good, you're born on third base, you can't be as hungry as I was. You can't be as hungry as maybe some family members are that are still in the neighborhood. Like that is nothing to do with this because you could be born on third base and still don't score home plate. Or you could be at the plate and get all around those bases. It's based on what you want to do, what they want to do. Yeah, it's not, you know, the old saying, right? It's cliche. It's not where you start. It's where you finish. But so much of that journey, and I and I think it's so important because me and you have had conversations before, but maybe not at this level. What I see out of you is from hearing your story and now your approach as a father, like, the internal motivation, the internal drive of young children sets the, st- sets the stage for the rest of their life. And we as adults, we as their immediate adults, as their parents, and then as a community around them, like we have to continue to encourage these kids that they are in control of their lives, right? We're going to help them. We're going to navigate them, but they're going to fall flat on their face on their own accord. They're going to succeed on their own accord. They're going to be able to do things as long as they're the ones we can't grab them by the ass and drag them across the field. Cause we want them to be great or we want them to excel. And I, what I see, I'd be curious, your take, what I see where we live and whatnot is it is a lot of parent driven model. Yes. The parents want the kids to achieve. It could be the piano. It could be football. It doesn't matter what it is, but the parents are having their kids live their dreams as opposed to supporting whatever it is he or she is super passionate about and really wants to go out and, and, and attack and, and achieve is what do you see? Yeah, I see that, man. It's the meeting of those two worlds. Um, I think why the narrative, why the stereotype, why the reality is a lot of athletes come from the hood is frankly, because you just said it, the parent model, those parents are looking at their kids. Like I need you to get there. And the quickest way, the cleanest way is entertainment athletics. So 
the kids who aren't inclined, talented to that, they get lost. And then all of a sudden you have all the other issues that come from being in the hood if you're not that baller, if you're not the entertainer. Uh-oh, you're going to start gangbanging. Uh-oh, you're going to start slanging. You're going to start doing other stuff, you know, being a mishap, et cetera. So that's how that goes. For kids today, my kids, I tell them, if it's to be, it's up to me. And you got to repeat that for yourself. If it's to be, it's up to me. Like, I, daddy can't clean the path, clear the path for you personally forever. It's not going to be that way. It's just not. My name is my name. My life is my life. I'm here to help you. I'm here to support you. I'm here to be a trampoline. But you got to take the jump. You got to take the leap. You got to do it. And they are understanding that. Frankly, my 23-year-old, who's at grad school at Columbia right now, is doing amazing because she went through that roller coaster ride of identity and adversity. She was a track runner. She was a really good track runner. Didn't make it to the Olympic level, professional level. So had to make that pivot. And she made the pivot. She's making that pivot as we speak right now. And she knows it's not because daddy is going to do it for me. It's going to be on Morocco. It's going to be on her. We'll see how the other youngsters play it through. But I am not going to be the one who maps on what I want for them and then make them have to live it out. It got to go the other way. It has to be them first. It, it's so true. And, and hearing everything you describe as far as expectations and different backgrounds, setting, you know, the culture of where you grow up and your family and everything being so unique to each individual. I didn't really experience that until I went to college. You know, I grew up in a, in a suburb in, in New Jersey. It was predominantly a white suburb. And we had, we were fairly diverse, but nothing, not like when I went down to Miami. So I didn't really understand. Like to me, we played football because we played football. Like it was not a means to an end. My parents were school teachers. We weren't rich, but we weren't poor. We had a house. It wasn't dependent upon us putting food on a table. Like it, we, it was just our life, all boys. And we played ball and we played sports. It wasn't until I went to Miami that I really shared a locker room with truly different backgrounds, right? right? Kids from the inner city of Miami and some of those inner cities of Miami, Marcellus, I know you've been down, like it is as tough as it gets. Yes. It's inner city Miami and Overtown and Liberty City and these kids. And to just learn and hear and get to know them, you know, they're my roommates. We're living in the dorms together. We become like to just hear their background and compare it. But yet here we are, we're all in the same path, different reasons, different motivations, different backgrounds. But here we are, like it wasn't until, you know, so I'm what, 18 years old that like my eyes really opened. And to me, that's the beauty of the sports experience. Like what other area of culture, of, of society can you give young kids, male and female, like that sort of exposure? Like to me, if nothing else out of sports, and I guess my question to you is, is there a better way to teach our young kids, to train our young kids, to just operate in society than asking them at a young age to operate in the world of athletics? No, I, I haven't seen it yet. And, and to be specific, not just athletics, uh, team sports, and yep. not just team sports, the greatest of all team sports, football. And look, even as a young lady, like we play against girls in our flag football. And I even seen some girls on my high school football team, tackle football team. But there's something special about football. In part, it's just a structure. There's 11 against 11. So that's 22 moving parts, 22 moving pieces that you have to calculate and figure out 
on the fly to have success. That is amazing exposure to real life experiences when everything is coming your way and you have to calculate on the fly on your feet. But for me, I got into football and felt the greatest love for football is when I put my hand in that huddle and I grew up without brothers. I had uncles and cousins, but two sisters, no brothers. And I remember putting my hand in the huddle. I'm eight, nine years old. And I'm like, wow, look at all these different color hands. And look at all these different hands from different parts of the neighborhood. Like two days ago, I didn't know this dude. And now we over here, not only hand on hand, but are really making a pact, making a promise. We're going to do something. And we're going to do it together. And then we're going to go our separate ways. And the craziest thing, Greg, wasn't just that moment is when we went our separate ways, we always felt united no matter what happened. The year later, we're on different teams. Still no my doubt. dog. Still you remember my that? dog. You remember that? Oh. Shared oh. goals, man. Shared goals, shared ideas. Uh, that You can't replicate a locker room. You can't, re- you know, whether it's at eight years old, but the, the, symbol, the symbolic nature of a locker room, there's just nothing like it. And, and, and the craziest thing for me, Greg, was... I lived in neighborhoods because this is L.A. gangster times. Like, you know, all the movies, all the all the yeah. songs. This before that. So this lets you know this is the real material they're going to talk about later and rap about later. We're going <laughs> through it. And the craziest thing was I had teammates who were my boys, like my brothers, but their uncles, their brothers had beef with somebody on our team. And it was crazy to watch. And this is a world experience. This is a life lesson to watch two brothers have to get pitted apart, pitted against each other because of other dynamics around them. And what do you do when you're the one caught in the middle? And football was an opportunity to be a safe place, a safe haven, even when your family doesn't like their family or your neighborhood doesn't like their neighborhood. We dropped all of that when we put those hands in the middle. And if we could find that huddle somewhere in the real world where everybody could be like, my differences are over here. But right now, I'm going to respectfully disagree with you for something greater than all of us will be somewhere. Yeah, I mean, and how and how fitting is that situation you just described? But as you said, like in the times we live in today, right, what we've been through over the last just handful of years, like how is there a better time to use a locker room and to use sport as like a symbol of what we all hope and see the whole country, the whole world being like, and again, it sounds trivial. It sounds like we're dumbing down the argument, but at its core, that's really what it is. Yes. I think that's so fair. I want to change gears for one, you know, just for, for a second here, because you've accomplished a lot, right? I mean, your playing career, what you've accomplished for your family, now your time on TV shows, podcasts. I mean, you are well accomplished to me. What sticks out the most about you and I want to dive into this is you weren't just a great kid growing up in the inner city playing sports. You went from the inner city of Los Angeles. You went to Ivy. You went to Columbia Ivy league, graduated, played ball there. Of course, went on to the NFL, but you're like an accomplished academic, very intelligent, very smart. It comes across in everything that you do. Like tell us a little bit about what that you're a high school kid. You're the football star. Was it hard to also say, hey, but you know what? I'm going to go, I'm going to, I'm capable of going to the Ivy League. Like in growing up in LA, like, was that crazy? 
<laughs> it oh, sounds yeah. to me like, did people know where Columbia, like, I don't know if where we, <laughs> I grew up in the Northeast. I don't even know if we growing up in the Northeast, if we know where half the Ivy league schools are, because none of us were smart enough to go to the Ivy league schools. <laughs> <laughs> right. You're like, what, what are you talking about? Where's, oh, let me tell like, you Brown. I don't, I, I think it's somewhere. It's somewhere <laughs> up in here, right? Like Yale, Brown, Columbia. We knew Princeton cause it was in New Jersey. So that was an easy one, but like coming from mm-hmm. the West coast, I, I want to hear about that journey. Yeah, man, it's funny. You sound just like my boys, man. I ain't gonna lie to you, Greg. Woo! When I got my letter <laughs> from Columbia, this is hilarious. I get a letter from Columbia. I told my boy, I said, "Man, uh, I got a letter from Columbia. I may may take a trip there. You know, see what's up over there." He said, "Columbia? You going to school in South America?" And I said, "Oh, <laughs> damn, damn. We gotta get out the hood, man. We gotta move. We gotta." <laughs> That's so good. I didn't know either. I can't lie. I, I couldn't I, tell you. I, 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 I can't lie. High school me, I couldn't tell you where it was. No, not at all. I knew, I, I heard of Harvard, yeah, of course. Yale, and Princeton. And it was because Bill Cosby used to wear on the Cosby show the sweaters. And that was the only reason I knew. I was like, interesting. He, he kept wearing these sweaters from these schools. And I was yeah. like, oh, those are Ivy League schools. I never knew there, there were eight Ivy League schools. I thought it was only those three. And... So this is how it happened. It kind of came together from a lot of different places. I had a coach that went to Columbia. And one day I'm in practice and I'm, you know, doing my reps and I look at his shorts and it says Columbia. But it's it's a powder blue, like Columbia blue is actually the color, but I called it powder blue, Carolina blue. I right. never heard of Columbia. Right, of I was like, what's this? Yeah. And I was like, I said, where you get them shorts from? He's like, oh, that's where I went to school. I said, Columbia? He was like, yeah, it's a school in New York, Ivy League school. I said, those are the colors? He was like, yeah. And then he, and the, the next thing he said, because he saw my curiosity and the wheels start spinning, he said, oh, don't go there to play football, Marcellus. It's the worst football program in the country. And I thought he was exaggerating, hyperbolic. Turns out they had a 44-game losing streak at the time <laughs> he was saying that, and he was dead on. Like, Prairie View A&M finally beat their streak. But to that point, it was the worst college football program in the country. And that piqued my interest only because of the Ivy League academic reputation, right? So I take my recruiting trips. I say I was a four-star. Like, my senior year, I was a low four-star because my senior year, we only have 17 players. I I transferred schools to go to a better school. I get there. We play our junior year. Everyone on our team leaves to go to another school except me. I stay. We're 17 players deep. We don't even have enough to go a scrimmage in practice. Right. It's just horrible. So that hurt my recruiting to a degree. We didn't win one game. We go 0-10, and, and then they retroactively give us one win because they had an ineligible player. So basically, we are an 0-10 team with 17 players, but you got this baller on the team named me. So I'm still getting recruited by big schools, and I remember taking my recruiting trip to all the big schools, but Columbia. And growing up in L.A., there's only one other city that rivals L.A. in our imagination. That's New York. Like, you grow up, I'm sorry, Miami, I'm sorry. No, it's fair. Yeah, it's real. Yeah, yeah. Everywhere else, it was like, not nah, L.A., New York. That was the only thing. So I'm a big rap fan, big breakdancing fan, Beach Street, and just going way back in the days, the culture of New York exported to L.A. So I'm like, on a recruiting trip, two days in New York City, first time I ever seen snowfall, 
I remember our coach taking us on the trip. You know, you know how it goes. 48 yeah. hours of fun, parties. It's New York City. You can spend all the money you want, whatever. Eating pizza bigger than me. I'm loving life. <laughs> and, and, and none of those moments got me because that kind of happened every school you went to, just a different version. This is what got me. Our coach took us to the top of the World Trade Center. And we're in this big banquet room. And the, the backdrop is New York City skyline, 107th floor or something crazy. And it's only a few of us in there. And Coach looks around, and he says his same old speech trying to get us to commit. And he says, this is how he closed it, and this is what got me. He said, do you want to go somewhere and carry the torch or go somewhere like Columbia and light the torch? And once he said that, I swear, internally, I was like, that's it. I could play football anywhere, but can I get this education anywhere? So basically, it became this high safety net. I'm going to walk the high wire of trying to make it to the NFL with the highest safety net I could have possible in Ivy League education. Where did you learn, like, where did you develop that appreciation for academics? I think, just thinking of myself growing up, like, once I started getting recruited, I think we said like the academics were big, but like at the end of the day, we were really took, I took my visits to what were perceived to be the best football schools that were recruiting me. So like who, who else, I guess my, who else did you visit? Who did it come down to? But like, where did that innate sense of academics thinking long-term like as again, you're talking a 17, 18 year old kid. That's pretty advanced long-term thinking for that age. Yeah. Um, I had my trips, cows, UCLA, St. Mary's, Columbia. I actually had another one to Colorado, Colorado State. I didn't go on all my trips. Like, I'm, I grew up, I was a nerd. But I was a, a nerd who was proud of being a nerd. I embraced being a nerd for a couple reasons. Like, I was the guy who wanted to sit in the front of the class. I wanted to answer every question from hello. Like, that was, like, one of my first talents, it felt like. I was eager to learn. And immediately you get beat up by your peers or your friends because they're not getting the same grades or they don't know the answers. So, you know, I had to deal with that peer pressure. But I was like, what's wrong with, like, wanting to learn? Then someone told me, they're like, how long are you in school? And I was like, 8 o'clock to 3 o'clock. They were like, all right, that's seven hours. How long is practice? I was like, two hours. They're like, so you're in school almost four times as long as you are at practice. Don't you think you should take it a little more serious than you do even playing sports? So I was like, damn, they're like, stop wasting your time. So I used to spread that message. I used to be that nerd who used to tell cats, like, dog, we're going to be here way longer than practice. Practice is a breeze compared to this. Let's give us our time. Let's invest. And frankly, I knew my family. I knew no one in my family was going to have the opportunity that I had at that time. I knew that Everyone in my family had a job, no careers. Uh, I knew that everyone in my family in my whole neighborhood felt like people who lived on the edge, in part because they lived a lot of empty, empty promises. They lived through a lot of unfulfilled moments. They didn't do exactly what they desired to do. And they settled. So I used to look around and look, life gets in the way of living, man. I, my my mom and my dad, same thing. Uh, my mom had two kids by the age of 19. 
life's going to look different if you got two kids and you're not 20 years old yet. So she made a lot of sacrifices, but she also had to deal with the consequences of having two kids at 19. So she never lived up to her full potential. I knew that. She knew that. And when you see that everywhere, and everyone from the outside always said, oh, man, the gangs, the drugs, the poverty, that's the worst part about being in the hood, huh, Marcellus? I like, no. You know what the worst part was? The low ambition. How, it, how they beat it out of you to start and finish what you really want out of life. How they beat it out of you to start aiming lower than you desire just because you got to survive. So I didn't want to be in survive mode. I wanted to be in survive and thrive mode. So I had to recalculate it, man. And I, you know, I used everyone around me to give me something to fuel this engine so I can go out there and try and make it. That was my goal. Man, it, it, I'll tell you, just hearing, it's really impressive. I mean, I, I've always, obviously, I've known you, I've known of you, I've known, but just like hearing how you think and how you've approached and what marvels me, like hearing you say this now as an adult makes sense to me. You're an accomplished guy, you've done a lot. So, but to hear you have all this ability to reflect and think big long-term as a young kid is the takeaway that I get. And I just, I applaud you because I don't know how, I, I don't know. It's really impressive because I think back to myself at 18 and I was like, I don't know if I thought that long-term. So I think it's impressive. The, the last thing I want to ask you, and it's kind of along the, the theme of what you're talking about, like, do you see it when you, when you go out and you visit, you know, your old neighborhoods and you go around the country and, and you speak and you deal with, you know, coaching young kids teams and whatnot. Like, do you see similar experiences that you remember growing up? Do you see better? Do you still see the same kind of mindset, the same ideology in those neighborhoods saying, Hey, sports is our only way out. And as a result, I need to put that pressure. Do you like, have you seen it change? Or do you think 30, 40 years later, is it similar? Yeah, great question, man. Um, I, I'm really torn on this one because I will say I've seen a greater commitment from family, from neighborhood, and from the athlete than I saw growing up. Uh, growing up, you could be good and just be like, all right, I'm good. Growing up, you weren't thinking of a specialty coach, a, a training session, or weren't offered that if you didn't have the resources. So those were resources back then. They didn't compete necessarily as well as those from the inner city. And it used to be always this game. And, and like, this was the stereotype, but real too. The talent meets the discipline. The talent meets the chemistry. The talent meets the unity. Like the teams from the suburbs, yeah. they were slower. No, they yeah, weren't as talented. Yeah, no doubt. But guess what? They played like a fist. Like, damn. Like, <laughs> they are in the right position, all that. And in the stereotype, the generalization was, here come these dudes that can run circles around you, but are they going to do it together? And it used to be always that battle I saw growing up. But now, everybody got the memo. Even that kid from the inner city or from a lack of resources gets recruited or gets supported, where now he's getting that specialty training on top of the kid who's a late bloomer or not going to make it to the level of the league, but, hey, he's still into it. He's invested. He has a coach, too. And they're all doing this year-round and all day long. And I'm not going to lie, that's different. Uh, that feels a lot different, that investment and commitment. Um, other than that, I think that 
I think people are still looking at it the same way. It's the fastest way to get to the top. And I made the same calculation as well. Frankly, Greg, I wanted to be a school teacher, a guidance counselor, or a school dean, or a football player. Like, in terms of fulfillment, in terms of energy, in terms of passion being exuded, all four of those things would have given me the same inner fulfillment. The difference would have been the reality of football is going to dress me up a lot different with the money, the opportunities, the, the wealth than those other three. So when I kept getting bigger, faster, stronger, and playing well, obviously I took the football experience. But if I had graduated Columbia and they were like, dog, you didn't make it. You can't make it. You're not going to make it in the league. I wasn't going to die at some YMCA 24-hour fitness working out till I was 30. <laughs> I was yeah, going to be good. that school I'm teacher. Good. I'm, I'm good. good. I'm good. I'm good. I move on. I'm going to be the not... biggest teacher you ever seen. Ever. But damn you, it. <laughs> you walk into my high school history class, and I'm like, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> I said, shit. sit down. Okay, yes, sir. Yes, sir. <laughs> For that would have been man. a scene. That would have been an unbelievable scene watching you. Oh, my God. You would have had those kids would have sat up very straight. They're straight. That's <laughs> right. Well, Marcellus, man. Hey, this is one of my favorite conversations. We've had some awesome conversations. I think just your insight your honesty, your ability to reflect and kind of take us into a time, into an area that frankly, obviously a lot of us, I know myself, don't have a lot of experience in, but to hear you mm -hmm. kind of describe it, allow everybody to learn, understand the, the cultural ramifications of background and upbringing and, and where you grow up, I just think is a super timely conversation. Um, yeah. Obviously, you're incredibly well accomplished, unbelievable. And I just can't thank you enough for coming on You Think and sharing a little bit of your story. Man, it's been amazing, man. You know how much I respect you, the man and the baller you were, brother, man. Continue success. Keep killing it, brother. And we'll talk soon, man. I appreciate it. Thanks so much, buddy. We'll talk to you soon. All right, G.O. Hope you guys really enjoyed that conversation with Marcellus Wiley. I just think really hearing him reflect on his childhood and what it was like growing up where he did in Los Angeles and ending up all the way on the other side of the country at an Ivy League school at Columbia, just in the journey within that time. I, I just, he's a really interesting guy. I've gotten to know him. I've been on his show a bunch. So for him to take that time to come on, you think, and share a little bit of his story, a little bit of his pers uh, perspective and uh, insight was super appreciated. So thanks again to Marcellus Wiley for joining us um, at this time. The favorite, the favorite segment of all from our listeners, the questions, Tasha, Big day today, Tasha. We inter we interviewed Tasha's dad. We just have to say it. We interviewed yeah, Tasha's we dad today. He will be one of our next couple episodes. Absolute rock star. For those of you who don't know, Dino Babers, head football coach at Syracuse. Um, also better known as Tasha's dad. What a gem. I mean, what an absolute dream of a dude. Yeah, it was fun. It, it was, was fun. great. I know you rolled your eyes a couple times because you are the you are his daughter, and that's just <laughs> kind of part of it. But he was awesome. Yeah. It'll come out in a couple of weeks, so I'm excited to show them that and release it. It's going to be great. What yeah. do you have from our listeners? Uh, a couple of audience questions. Again, keep sending them in. The first one is from Davis from Instagram. He says, I'm a 13-year-old pitcher in California. You always heard of colleges checking your social media out to see what kind of person you are, but now they want to know how many followers you have, how many jerseys you will sell, how many people will come to watch you. It's pretty confusing right now. Do you have any advice for me? Wow. I, I, to be honest with you, I didn't really know that that was even happening. Um, 
I don't really have much perspective to share. I, I don't know if that's unique to baseball. I don't know if that's unique to maybe some of the sports where attendance and audience is a little bit more of a challenge. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, football, yes, one player is going to have an impact or whatnot, but if the team's good and the team's winning, the stadium's going to be full. It's not so dependent on one recruit or one person, maybe as much as basketball, for example, that's obviously heavily reliant upon landing top recruits. But I guess my, my answer would just be, be who you are, you know, be, don't try to be something you're not. Don't try to manufacture an image or a, you know, some sort of, you know, the perception of who you are just to try to impress a coach or, you know, if you're more comfortable being out there in public and sharing on social media and whatnot, then be you do your thing. And if that comes natural, if it doesn't, which for a lot of people, it's not natural to share their entire life on social media. It's something that I'm not like overly comfortable with. I do it for certain things, but it's not something I do daily. Be true to who you are. Cause at the end of the day, that's going to take you further than just trying to play up, you know, with a college coach about how many followers or what, and trying to sell some like false image. So I know in today's world, so much of people's perception of themselves and outside perceptions of them is so dependent on social media activity and, and how your life is seen from others. But I, I just, I'm not a big fan of that. And maybe you can call me old school, maybe a little bit of a different generation, but I think people need to be who they are. And if it works, it works. And if it doesn't, it wasn't meant to be at that school. There'll be somebody else. So focus on being the best player you can be. Focus on being the best person you can be, the best student athlete you can be. Everything else will take care of itself. You don't need to try to impress people by living a life that might not be authentic to who you are. Yeah, that's so odd. A college of one how anything. many jerseys I've never heard anything sell. like that. I've never heard of something so silly. That's strange. Um, our second one is from Mark, also from Instagram. He says, you talk about your dad being a hard-nosed coach when you were growing up. Now that he's helping you coach your kids, have you seen a softer side of him? Yeah, a little bit. It, it's still, he, he still is who he is and it comes out. He is a passionate, fiery guy. He wants the kids to succeed. He believes in hard work. He believes in discipline. And a lot of those qualities are qualities that I still carry with me. Not only in my parenting style, I definitely carried them forward in my playing career. Um, but I have a lot of those qualities and how I coach. Like I'm a very intense coach. I demand a lot of the kids because we tell them all the time. We ask a lot of you because you guys are capable of doing it. You guys have heard me say on this show, oftentimes the ones who limit what kids can do are the adults. If we would just stop putting ceilings on kids and and force them and push them to do more, there is so much more upside to a lot of them. So he's he's more probably more patient with the young kids than he was with his high school kids, just based on their age. A little bit different being a grandfather than a father. But when it comes down to it, especially this year with Pop Pop Warner, He takes it very serious. He wants the kids to succeed. He wants to teach them real football. He demands a lot of them. And as a result, the entire team has made such drastic improvements. They've come such a far way in a lot of ways because of his approach and because of his time and his commitment and how how much he loves, loves, loves working with these kids and pushing them to see how good they can get. So he's definitely of an older school approach. Um, but it works. It's worked for him for a long time. And, and the results are, are very positive. That's fun. That's fun. You get a coach with him because he was your coach. It's, yeah, coming it's full mostly circle. fun mostly until fun. we argue because we don't always see things the same exact way. And 
But you're allowed to fight with your dad and argue, and then we go for pizza after. So it's yeah, fine. It's great. Good time. It's the way uh, it goes. The last uh, fan question says, my son is 12. Are there any good online training programs that you recommend to be a better football player? Um, you know what? And, and as silly as it sounds, I don't know about like any online programs, I'll be honest, but there are some really good follows like on Instagram where you can follow like young, um, whether it's speed and agility coaches or positional coaches or, you know, former athletes that now have gotten into like personal training, personal coaching type stuff. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of garbage out there. There's a lot of people that just make things. I always call them, they're like Instagram coaches or, you know, Instagram workouts where you, you only do exercises or drills that look cool on camera, but they're not really getting anything accomplished. If you can manage to filter through that, and and we're going to do a better job on our social channels, sharing who these outlets are and who these channels are, because there are a lot of people that are putting up really good information, great content, not only drills and exercises, but recovery, nutrition, how young kids' bodies heal, how young kids' bodies develop. And there's, a, you know, the educational component aside from the training component that I think is super useful. I, I follow a lot of these myself um, in some of the other sports where, yeah, I'll, I'll pay attention to someone maybe who I think really does a nice job teaching kids how to hit or field or whatnot. And then I'll kind of bank that and utilize some of those drills or utilize some of those messaging at some of our next practices. So social media for as crazy as it can be, if done right, it's a really good source of education. And we will do a better job here on you think sharing some of those channels. Cause I, I personally follow a lot of them as does our, you think, uh, our, you think page. Yeah. That was a really good question. And it's a great question. Yeah. Keep submitting them in at you think or at Greg Olson on TikTok, Instagram, or Twitter. Appreciate you, Tasha. Thank mm -hmm. you for hooking it up and getting your dad. That was a special treat for us. And uh, thank you again to all of you. As Tasha said, please continue to rate, review, subscribe, wherever you guys get your podcasts. And we look forward to seeing you guys next week here on You Think.